The future of conflict, the future of warfare between nations will be cyber. And it appears that Canada is not ready for the future. A new report just released, it came out back in 2019, and it was given to the Canadian government from Clairvoyant Cyber Corporation, which is a company run by a former senior intelligence official, paints a pretty bleak picture of a rapidly escalating cyber arms race. Expect more aggressive cyber attacks from the Chinese and Russian governments, that is according to this report. And these things will just fall just below the threshold of armed conflict. And we are seeing an increase in cyber attacks, not always necessarily from state-sponsored attacks from foreign nations, but we also have a situation of bands of rogue criminals um, with ransomware. And all of that factors into what Canadians will be facing in the future. I'm very pleased to welcome to the program Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Affairs at Carleton University. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. Can we talk about the level of threat that Canada is facing? Let's begin from uh, foreign nations in terms of cyber attacks. So there's a range of activity. I mean, we kind of, ter- you know, we have this generic term, we call it cyber attacks. That's not really accurate. I mean, there's a range of what we might better be called cyber malicious activity. So there are actually attacks, right? Everyone, I think most people have heard of Stuxnet, which was an attack that was conducted against um, Iran, but presumably by uh, the United States and Israel, which actually caused physical damage in the wor- real world. So that's probably the, the highest level of threat that you have, that you can actually shut down a SCADA system which is a, you know, a control system for, you know, a, a plant or some kind of major critical infrastructure. And then you have, of course, cyber espionage, which is, you know, where uh, state actors, even non-state actors, may target an entity uh, in order to learn its secrets, get a hold of its intellectual property, um, get advantage in some kind of negotiation. Then one of the things we've been looking at a lot recently is, uh, you know, forward influence campaigns that use cyber means to basically try and manipulate elections. And finally, you have things like cybercrime, which kind of, you know, everything I just talked about is a crime in some way. But I thinking, I'm thinking here specifically of ransomware, which is a, you know, we heard a lot about uh, just this month with um, the colonial pipeline in the United States was targeted by ransomware. And uh, I thought that was, you know, that's an important thing. Um, because it, it really does, you know, we saw the impact of that. The pipeline actually had to shut down, gas prices spiked up, and it had a real impact on uh, not just the United States, but also Canadian gas prices as well. So these, this is the kind of range of cyber activity we're, we're looking at. And yeah, um, you know, by all accounts, it's, it's becoming easier to do and, and more dangerous. Has the pandemic just driven so many more companies online without the kind of security that they need that they are now easy targets for ransomware? Uh, I think so. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to conduct a ransomware attack. You just need to get the right person to click on the malicious link or open the wrong file. And so, you know, it's, it's a pretty effective way. The Colonial Pipeline uh, incident was, is pretty instructive and on where this may be heading. So they used a kind of software that was available. It was actually like, uh, it's, it was kind of like ransomware as service. So in other words, there was a group that I, based in Russia that created this uh, ransomware software and they would license it out to criminal gangs. 
um, with with a code and conditions that they had to follow. Like one of the conditions was you you can't strike anything of the, the within Russia or that is of interest to the Russian government. So a little telling there, but. And the fact is that, you know, these individuals, they kind of apply to be able to get access to the ransomware. If they're successful, then they're allowed to use it and attack whatever target they want. So that's effectively what happened. It's kind of like, you know, renting a car or, uh, you know, getting a loan or things like this. So, you know, ransomware is actually professionalizing in really odd ways that, um, you know, again, may make this a lot harder uh, for nation states to actually deal with. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you look at companies in Canada like Bell, uh, Rogers, uh, I should say global, why not global? But also our banks and things like that, they actually have good cybersecurity practices. Like I don't really worry about our banks being hacked too much, but it's the small, medium enterprises, uh, law firms, uh, small, to medium sized companies. Uh, these are the things that I worry about because it's expensive to have good cybersecurity and they may not necessarily have the resources or knowledge in order to kind of fight off these more advanced threats. So your assessment of, of major Canadian infrastructure would be that it's fairly well protected? Yeah, I mean, there's been some really interesting reporting lately by the logic uh, as well as other uh, media outlets that, you know, our cyber, you know, our energy companies are potentially targets and that they have, in fact, been targeted in recent years. We, we you know, and it's interesting because I read, you know, the, I haven't actually seen the report that you talked about in the introduction to this segment, but I've read about it. And I mean, I would actually come to a slightly different conclusion. I think in recent years, Canada has actually you know, we've we've enhanced our cyber defenses in some really important ways. We are far more centralized, for example, than the United States. So when a major cyber attack happens, everyone kind of knows where to go and what their role is. Um, so they can actually speak to, you know, like, so for example, if we have a cyber attack in Canada, the institution that responds is the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity, which is a part of the communication security establishment, kind of our cyber spies, who know how, you know, have a lot of know-how and can help these, uh, you know, different uh, organizations respond, direct them to the right resources and things like that. In the United States and in the UK, those responsibilities are, are much more divided across different agencies. So in Canada, we actually have a fairly robust cyber defense. We're usually ranked within the top 10 globally of uh, countries in terms of our cyber defensive capabilities. And our other advantage is that we're actually pretty nimble in the sense that we have a clearly defined set of roles to respond to these kinds of attacks. Speaking with Stephanie Carvin from Carleton University, give me a sense of of how it works now where we have Russia and and China. They may not actually be state-sponsored attacks, but as you mentioned, you know, that there are criminal gangs that, you know, as long as you don't attack Russia or, or whatever. Just give me a sense of how you see the future playing out with these this sort of decentralized, um, almost, you know, cyber militias out there that are not necessarily acting on the instruction of a state but being protected by a state. I love that question because it gets exactly to the point that I think really needs to be made, which is that it's not just states, it's also their proxies. Right. And so we're dealing with a lot of cyber proxies, which are things like, you know, it could be anything from um, like a like a cybersecurity company that's paid to go out and get information or do hacking. It could be, um, you know, like I talked about 
earlier, these Russian um, criminal gangs that, you know, pay for these information or provide services. And the Russian government doesn't approve of them. They don't work for the Russian government, but there's an understanding between them. And they're allowed to operate on Russian soil because they're effectively achieving a Russian interest in kind of destabilizing our cyber environment. And then finally, you have these kinds of groups of so-called patriotic hackers that are out there. Um, and so, for example, you, Estonia and Ukraine, they frequently have been ta- uh, targeted by the Russian government. So, um, you know, they're citizens that have come together. I mean, I'm certainly with the approval of the Rus- you know, Ukrainian and Estonian government to try and uh, counter some of these threats. And, you know, so we're kind of seeing... The, you know, the nature of, of the cyber environment change, we're seeing, um, you know, actors involved. It's hard to believe that, you know, malicious cyber activity won't feature in, in future conflicts or future hostile activities. And, you know, we even saw that here in Canada in, um, I believe it was 2018, when the Saudi government got mad at us and kicked out our diplomat. All of a sudden, our social media was just absolutely influxed by Saudi trolls who are, you know, posting fake information about Canada, posted like offensive memes and things like that. Um, that's just on on the foreign influence front. But, you know, when we have these kinds of incidents in Canada and China or Canada and, um, you know, Russia, we, you know, you can see an uptick in malicious cyber activity that targets Canada. And I think that's going to be something that continues for some time. Stephanie, so great to have you on. Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. Oh, anytime. Thanks for having me on. That is Stephanie Carvin, who's an associate professor of international affairs at Carleton University.